if you guys will, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2 is where we're going to be today, specifically looking at verses 1 through 14. Uh, we began a new series last week uh, looking at the book of 1 John called The Gospel is Love. Uh, we'll really walk through the first 10 verses, that, that entire chapter, chapter 1, and uh, we're going to recap, um, look back to the historical tradition uh, some of those things are the, really the three main things that, that the Lord revealed to us, and particularly us, us, Double Oak Community Church Chelsea, in our particular context, what it means to believe in the gospel, to live in the gospel, and live out the gospel. So hopefully you found First John in your copy of God's Word. Uh, but before we read the passage together, before we walk through this, um, look, I think I'm like many of you who uh, are aware of our world uh, and recognize the things that are happening in it. Um, every Sunday there are a number of things uh, that we can pray for. Um, we, we need to pray for our world today. We need to pray for our leadership. We need to pray for brothers and sisters. Um, the reality of what we, what we walked through last week in 1 John 1, uh, this recognition that, that we have fellowship with other believers in the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Um, we have brothers and sisters across the world today that are suffering. They're suffering. Um, and we need to ask the Lord that he'll meet them in that suffering. Um, and I would even say this. Um, sorry. Um, everything in the world would tell us, everything inside ourselves would tell us to run away from pain. To escape that which harms us, which hurts us. To run from pain. Every religion in the world says, go away from it and seek pleasure, get outside of it, go, go earn favor with the God or, or, or do these types of things. But the gospel is so different because this is what happens in the midst of the gospel. Christ meets us in our pain. He has taken on flesh. And we don't have a great high priest that we're going to pray to in a moment that is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Instead, he has felt the pain that comes with bearing this flesh and the pain of persecution like those across the world in Afghanistan in a way that we can't even quite grasp or imagine. Uh, so let's just take a moment together to bow our heads, if you will. Um, And ask the Lord to work miracles um, and to reveal himself. So, Father, in this moment, God, we recognize you as sovereign. Father, we recognize you as good. And yet, Father, this week we have seen images, we have heard stories, we have encountered um, evil and deep and pervasive ways that um, we haven't probably been aware of as resonantly in the, in the recent past. So, um, God, I know for, for many of us, our hearts are broken. God, we long to see justice and mercy done, Father. And God, we confess that our only hope, that the hope of this world is in you and none other. 
So God, we ask you this morning, as a small group of believers here, um, on the other side of the world from such destruction and pain and horror and evil, um, God, would you be present and would you work miracles? God, we ask that you would protect believers. God, that you would protect those who love you and know you. God, we ask that you protect the vulnerable. That you protect women and young girls, other men and young boys. We ask that you protect these people. American or Afghan or anything in between, Father, would you protect them? God, I confess that we don't know how to do this well, but, but Jesus teaches us that we're to pray for our enemies. So God, we ask in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would draw these people who live in a dominion of darkness. God, would you transfer them into a kingdom of light? Would you bring them to yourself? Would you show the power of your salvation? Would you create in them clean hearts? God, would you make them new? Because the presence of the gospel, these believers that are there, um, and God, for physical needs, for food, for shelter, Father, and, and ultimately, Father, for so many, safe departure. We pray that those that are returning here to America, those that are returning home, would do so safely. God, and for those that stay, those that have no way out, Father, would you protect them? Would you make them, God, experience and know your peace and to trust you in the midst of pain and brokenness? God, we humbly ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. First uh, John chapter 2. First John 2, we began a series last week uh, entitled The Gospel is Love. Uh, ultimately looking at First John and this book as a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the implications that it has for not only the people to whom John writes in this letter, but also to you and me. These are timeless truths for all of us. We encountered in in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 10 three very, very evident things last week as we looked at verses 1 through 10. We saw Jesus as one that John proclaims who who has not only been heard, he's not only been seen, he's not only been looked at up close, but as one who is touched. He talks about concerning the word of life. He talks about Jesus and gives the historical account. He presents the gospel. This is an echo of what Paul would do in a chapter like 1 Corinthians 15, where he would say, this is the gospel that that Jesus has been crucified for our sins, that he's been buried, that he's risen on the third day, that he appears to the twelve. That these things, these events are not an idea, they're not an ideology, it's not stuff that we dream up that that has, has sought to kind of sort of change people sociologically or modify behavior. No, instead, this is an historical account of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who has come to redeem John presents that gospel. He calls us to belief in it. 
And he describes what happens as we believe in that gospel in chapter 1, that we have fellowship with one another because we have fellowship now with God the Father and with Christ the Son through the Spirit. And then finally... Not only does he tell us to believe the gospel and to live in the gospel, but he describes the new life that we have in Christ as one of which we live out the gospel. The way he describes it is walking in the light. We'll see some of that in chapter 2 today. Uh, As we get into chapter 2, there's a couple of things that we'll draw our attention to that really point uh, point back to why John is writing this letter. Why is John writing this letter? Well, first off, we looked at last week and said that, look, there's, there's no introduction at this letter. If you look at the pages before you, you see that, there, that there's no prescript. It's not written to anyone in particular. What does this mean? Well, ultimately, this means that this is a circular letter. John has written to try to write uh, these words, these truths, ultimately to everyone. This is a letter that is going to be passed around through all these churches in the area in which John kind of serves as an elder and a pastor. He's in this area called Ephesus. And there's a number of these young house churches, all of these people that are in small groups that are meeting, uh, that are worshiping the Lord. And he is instructing them. He is teaching them. He's doing it through this letter. Um, this is a group of people that are likely comprised of Christians, Christians of a Jewish background. And so he tells us these timeless truths of believe in the gospel, to live in the gospel, to live out the gospel. But, but these aren't just timeless truths for you and me. They actually had a very distinct purpose for the people that he's writing to in this moment. See, there's these people, there's this group of people who's left the church. They've departed from the church, and many of them are proclaiming uh, that, that Jesus is not, in fact, God's son. They're denying Jesus' divinity. And we look, we're going to look in chapter 3 in the next couple of weeks, and you'll see that, that there's a passage in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, I think all, it works all the way through 10, that really shows you the hostility that they're bringing up, the things that they're doing to try and dissuade people from following the Lord. So John is writing to these people to instruct them of their faith and remind them of their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, with that being said, that being kind of the foreground here, let's read 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. 1 John 2, 1 through 14. It says this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother 
is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Say it with me. Thanks be to God. Um, let's look at this verse by verse. I, I think today there's some really, really helpful things, and we'll work quickly. Uh, but one of the first things we see, there's this big shift that happens in, in, the, in the tone, and, and not just really the tone, but the way the words John speaks in chapter 2 and what we just read is different than that of chapter 1. In chapter 1, he speaks very much so as he testifies to and proclaims the gospel in first-person plural. This we language that, that we have heard, that we have seen, that we have looked upon, that we have touched, that we proclaim to you, that now you have fellowship with us. That is, is the way John writes and presents the gospel, proclaims it, says that we're to believe in it, that we're to live in it, that we're to live it out. He does it in a way amongst others in fellowship. And then now he takes this tone. As you look into verse 1, it says, my little children. It becomes first person singular. It becomes very personal to John. This elder, this, this one, this apostle, this one who has seen Jesus and who is shepherding and safeguarding and seeking to teach and instruct these young churches. This is very personal. He says, my little children. And he states his purpose for writing. He says this, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is the goal. This is the thrust that they would not be caught up in this sin that has so easily entangled these that who, have, who have walked away, who have said that, no, Jesus is not God's son, who are saying that they have no sin. Remember back into 1 John 1, 8, these people that, have, that say, they, they claim that they have no sin, that they're without sin. John is writing here to say, don't Live in this way. You're not called to live in this way. He's writing them with a purpose to help them see that they should not sin. It's not that they'll never sin, and we'll see that in verse 2, but it's a recognition of how to live. John recognizes that believers will succumb to temptation and sin, but the longing is that believers would walk in the light. Here's what he says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when we see that word, advocate, what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be our advocate with God the Father? Here's what it means. It means that he speaks on our behalf. On our behalf. Now, this is very different than just speaking for someone. This is not just saying something for them. Instead, this is saying and standing for them. This is what advocacy means. It's one who speaks on behalf of one who is accused. So obviously sin dealing with the recognition that we have fallen short. We have fallen short of the glory of God, that we have not trusted God, that we have not loved God, that we have not kept his commandments. And Jesus Christ is described as the advocate with the Father. He's the righteous one 
That's why it says Jesus Christ, the righteous, he's the righteous one that is able to make this plea on our behalf. So what qualifies this advocacy? Look into verse 2. It says this, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I remember being young and hearing this word and having no idea what it meant. What does propitiation mean? What does it mean? Other versions will say atoning sacrifice. What happens in the crucifixion, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what we find, propitiation, is this. It's not only the removal of guilt, but it's also the removal of God's wrath towards sinners. So this word, there's a Greek word here underneath propitiation that was used a lot in this time and in this world. A lot of times outside of scripture. It's really religious language. This is language that would be employed by, be used by those like Homer and in, in, in classical Greek writings and all these writings about gods and that gods would have to be propitiated. They'd have to be kind of satisfied. They'd have to be placated with the wrongdoings of their followers. Those that were, those that were pledging their loyalty or allegiance to these gods, these gods would you would see often in Greek literature and early literature around this time and times to come that, that the idea was is that when a god was angry that there would be a sacrifice or there would be something that would ultimately placate this god. It's not righteousness that was imputed. Instead, it was distracting. It was bribing. It was giving of a thing. It was making a concession in a very human way to shift, to shift that anger, that blame, that guilt. But something different happens here. And John uses this word to describe that Jesus is not placating God. And he's not just distracting him away from what we've done. And it's not just don't look at them, just look at me, look at what I've done. Instead, Jesus is doing this incredible thing where he is in fact fully the propitiation for our sins. He's both advocate and propitiation. This is, what that, this is what that means. What Jesus pleads for us is what he has done for us. What he pleads is what he has done for us. And look at what's happening here. Howard Marshall says it this way, and I, I really think this is the most powerful way to say this. God provides the means of forgiveness and he pays the cost of it. I want you to think about that. God provides the forgiveness in Jesus Christ and pays the cost of it in his son, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. What Jesus pleads for us is what has been done by him. So Calvin would say it this way, Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. The continual application of Christ's death to our salvation. This is God doing this. Make no mistake that God is not satisfied, that his wrath, his not anger is not turned away by our good behavior or even the deep recognition of our guilt. Instead, it is the person and work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which satisfies wrath, which is the atoning sacrifice for which we can be forgiven and have a relationship with God. 
That's the truth. That's the reality of the gospel. The power of the gospel that God gives us forgiveness in his son, that he makes that possible and he pays the cost of it in his life. And then look at this. It says, not only for ours, so Jesus is not only this atoning sacrifice, that which has been given and satisfies God, not only for our life, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. This is the efficacy, this is the power, this is, this is the truth of the gospel. It is hard for me to grasp this morning. But those who would do harm to others. Those who would, who would hurt others. Who would sin against God and sin against neighbor. There is power in that salvation for them. Because it's for power for the salvation for you and me. This is, what, this is what Paul writes when he writes in, in Romans 1, 16. What does he say? He's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of salvation for all who believe. This is not for some who believe. This is for all who believe. This is the depth. This is the magnitude of the power of what Christ has done. This propitiation. His life, death, and resurrection. Look at verse 3. It says this. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now there's this deep shift that John makes to the knowledge of God. If we know him. All right, this idea of knowledge is not, uh, it, one, is a theme of ancient religion of all kinds. There's these people um, that are a lot like those who have walked away and said that Jesus is not God. They're, they're a group called the Gnostics. They're people that would say, hey, we have some sort of special revelation about God, or, or we've had this mystical experience that has told us who God is, and now we know of God. But ultimately, each of these people, each of these groups, are ultimately, they're, they're, in, they're looking for, they're seeking out some way of religious attainment. They're trying to get to this place of salvation. Here's the difference. There's no correlation of that that we see historically with any change in behavior, any transformation personally. So these people that say they know God, their lives don't look any different. And this is what John writes to us, and this is the assurance we have that true knowledge of God is intimacy with him. It's an understanding of who he is in that we long for, we long to to fulfill the desires of the Lord. We long to be obedient. We long to love one another. Here's what this shows. That keeping God's commandments is not prerequisite for salvation. We live in a world that says, do this and get this. If then... That's the world we live in. If you do this, then this happens. But what John is saying here, look very closely at this. It's not the commandments that are prerequisite for salvation. Instead, those are the evidences of salvation. This is what happens when we believe in the gospel. When we receive this life in the gospel, we begin to live it out. These commandments that God has commanded, these things become true of our life if we know Jesus. If we know him, these 
things will happen. Living in accordance with his commands comes from believing in him, from trusting in him. Look, we will fall, we will fail, we will sin, but if our heart's desire is to keep his commandments, if we are convicted of sin, if we're confessing our sin, if we're repenting of sin, this is evidence that we know him. This is evidence that he is in us. Look into verse 4. And we see the characteristics of those who are not in him. It says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Look, the knowledge of God, as Paul has espoused at this point, is consistent with life in God. The one who says that I love Jesus and yet does things that that are, are antithetical to, that are opposite to, the way that Jesus calls us to live, that should be a picture. That should be evidence that these things do not match up. That there are those who, who say they follow Jesus, but their lives contradict that. Look at verse 5, it says this, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. And look into verse 6, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So what is this idea of keeping his word and then how that correlates with the love of God being perfected in ones who keep his word? What does that look like? What is John saying? Here's what he's saying, that the love of God is made manifest, that it is shown, that it is pictured in this beautiful, in this perfect, in this way that is complete when we keep his word. When we keep his commandments, the point of perfection does not indicate that we've arrived. That's not what John is saying. He's not saying that there's this moment in which the love of God is perfected and now it's all done. It's settled. It's over for the life of the believer. That can't be. He's already said that, look, we're going to be people that sin. But if we sin, we have the advocate in Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying. That picture of completion shows the greatest commandment. The thing that all the law and the prophets hinge on. That we love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. That we love our neighbor as himself. The language here, the in him language, is abiding language. You know who the people are that in your life they look like Christ? They look like there are these things that are beautiful in them. The way they love others, the way they care for others, the way they minister to others. The kind of person uh, that, that Tim Keller would describe it in this way. The people that are, that are self-forgetful. That person, when they're with you, they're focused on you. They're concentrated on you. They're not worried about the next thing that they're going to say. They're not worried about finding their identity in you. They're looking to you to try to minister to you, to care for you, to love you, the people that you know in your life like that. That is what John is describing. He's describing this picture of completion where love is realized, where grace is recognized. And he says this in verse 6, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is beyond intimidating. It's downright scary (laughs) to a large degree. How can this be? How can it be that the people that know they're in Christ, it's because of this, that they walk as he walked? I can't do that. 
can't be Jesus. So what is John saying? What is John saying to those of us? He's acknowledged our propensity to sin. We're not called to be sinless, but we ought to be seen in this way. We ought to reflect the one who is. We ought to be people who live in such a way that we reflect Jesus to the world. And we ought to be able to ask the hard question to our husband, to our wife, to our children, to our friends, to our neighbor. Do you see me this way? Am I one who reflects the love of Jesus? This is what John is after. He's encouraging them not to sin, not just to, not to just choose a, a better path in righteousness, but to choose life and to reflect him who is the true light. He does this by describing this commandment. He says, Beloved, in, chapter, in verse 7, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So John's readers specifically would be very aware of, this is a big part of his language and who he is, He's very, he, they, would be, they would be very aware of this idea of this new commandment that, that is presented to believers in Christ. This comes in John chapter 13. These are the last days of Jesus. And John records them in this way. He says that Jesus says this. John chapter 13 verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you're also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what John is saying in this moment. That these believers have known this from the beginning. From the very beginning, from the very moment that they've trusted Christ, from the very moment that they've believed in this gospel, that they believed in the scriptures, they believe what Jesus has done from the very inception of this moment that this happened, they have known that this is the command, this is the way that they're called to live out life. This is what it looks like, that you love one another. You love one another as you have been loved by Jesus. They've known this from the beginning. So it's old, but it's finding newness in their context. And this is what John is after. Look into verse 8. It says, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him. So it was true in Jesus, and now it says this, and in you. This is happening in the believers because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. They're called to see love for one another in this new way. That this love Jesus teaches, this love Jesus has given is now to be lived out by them in this context, in this new era. So there's just all this language of the darkness that's passing away and the true light that's already shining. I want to read this to you. It says, uh, this, is a, this is a quote from Howard Marshall. It says this. John is giving his, his readers this. It's the picture of a world in the darkness of night, but that the rays of the dawning sun have begun to shine. More and more areas are becoming light instead of dark, and the sun is getting brighter. There are still dark places, completely sunk in shadow, but there are places where there is bright light, and it is here, it's in this light, where the disciples are to be found, walking in the light and shedding the light themselves. This morning, we spend time praying for a dark place. It is evident to you and I of the darkness that is in our world. And the atrocity and the pain 
the things that are happening that are evil there, the reality is that many of those things are happening here too. But John has an encouraging word for us today, and it's this. Light has come, and this light is growing. Do not be dismayed. Do not believe the lie that the enemy would have you believe this morning, which is that there is no hope. That there's no hope. Look at this. Look at what the world has come to, what it's gone to. And it's always been this. But the gospel says that the true light has come, and now this true light, this new commandment of love is taking place in the way that you and I are living out that gospel in this world. That that light is, is not coming from us who are light. Instead, it's coming through God's Spirit. God is working it through us into the realities in the darkest corners of this world, in the darkest corners of our little world. That light is being shed. As we walk in the light, as we live out the gospel, as we affirm belief in this gospel, and it transforms us by God's Spirit, this world is being changed. Paul would say it in this way. He would describe the gospel as bearing fruit all over the world. That is happening even now, even in the most painful places of peril. Um, let's look into verses 9 uh, through 10 and see the parallel with darkness. John says, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So he uses the word brother here. So he's not describing someone outside the faith. That's very clear to note. He's using the word brother. He says, in the same way that light's the opposite of darkness, so is love the opposite of hatred. If we don't love others, if we don't serve others, if we don't consider the needs of others, then we're in the darkness and we're not living out that truth. Our hearts are hardened. Ultimately, as we see in verse uh, verse 11, that they're blinded. Verse 10 says this, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be abiding in the light through love and that there is no cause for stumbling? Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is a picture of our abiding. It's a picture of our intimacy with God, and it has a real implication. It affects others. Our lives affects others. So this is what happens in verse 10. That, that in him, in Jesus, there is no cause for stumbling. So what's the implication? There's something that happens when we love one another. It's this. We recognize that we've been loved by God. We've become aware of our sin that causes us to stumble. We become aware of that which causes us to stumble, of of sin, this idea of turning inside of ourselves. The self-centeredness of sin is now recognized as futile. That's how we regard sin. That's how we see it now. We know that it's worthless. It is not life. That's not where life is found. So we believe in the gospel and we live it out by saying no to sin. We resist temptation by God's spirit and his power. And now we live this life of love. And there is no cause for stumbling in this life. When the light is on, we see 
that which was hidden by darkness. And now we were able to live in righteousness. And verse 11 says this, But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So this is a picture of hatred. It's darkness. It's blinding us to where we're called to go. The analogy may seem really, really simple, but it's deeply profound. If we don't live in obedience, if we're not trusting in Jesus, if we're not believing the gospel in present day, right now, in this moment, not not something that happened once for us and and we leave it there and we just kind of go on with our lives, but instead the present reality of the gospel If we don't believe it in this moment, we will begin to see the light stem. Our hearts will be hardened and we will stumble and we'll miss what God has for us. All this comes through hating the brother. Through not expressing the love that we've been given to others. Let us be people that love one another. John's concern is to say this. And in verses 12 through 14... Some really powerful closing words before he addresses the relationship of these believers with the world around them. This is what he says. Verses 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Now, one of the first things, um, even prior to the address, I want to look at the the back end clause of that. Because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. This is, this is the preeminent truth that's presented in all three of these verses. This is the thing that's presented in all of these verses. Uh, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. What does that mean? Forgiveness comes for his name's sake. What does for, na- for his namesake mean? Here's what it means. On account of his name. So here's what you've got to understand about this, these people that Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to a group primarily of Jewish Christians. And in the Jewish world, a name is something incredibly powerful. This is not something that's just used to kind of denote you or, or make you distinct from another person. Instead, that name speaks of the reality of who you are, of every single thing about you. It's not a way to distinguish between people, but it reveals who people are in this world. So when it says his namesake, it stands for the person and work of Jesus. For his name is who he is. And the gospel that he has given to us, that that is lived out in righteousness in him. Crucified, buried, raised on the third day, ascending to the Father. This is who Jesus is, his namesake. That is why we're forgiven, because of what he has done for us. Here's the last thing. In the midst of presenting these deep truths, John writes to these these three, kind of looks like three groups of people. If you have your scripture, look at it before you. You see these things. He says, little children... So he refers to them as children, and then also young men, and then also fathers. What's he doing here when he writes to these people? 
there's a couple of ideas. Um, is he writing to three groups of people according to their age? Like their actual physical age. Is this what he's doing? Or is he referring to these groups according to kind of their spiritual maturity? The first thing that we need to see is this. When he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, because of who he is. He's saying this very clearly, that this is for everyone. So these children, when he uses the word children, he's saying this for all the believers that he writes to. He uses this specific word, children, to address everyone, all of these believers, in chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 28, in chapter 3, verse 18, in 4, 4, and in 5, 21. So all of these other times in this letter, he's saying children, and he's referring to everyone. You got to remember, he, he's an elder, he's a spiritual father to these churches. So he's saying this to everyone. This word children is not about children and age, this little bitty thing. And it's really not even about children as a spiritual maturity marker. These people who are young in faith, instead, he's writing to all believers. He's saying this is for all of us that our sins are forgiven. And then he says this, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know, or yeah, because you know the father. It's all present tense. He writes these truths to them as they're happening in the moment. These are things that are happening right now. I write these things to you. I'm saying this to you now. And then verse 14, everything changes. He says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You might say, Michael, I don't understand. That says, I'm writing. I'm writing to you, little children. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, young men. And in the back half of 13, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. What's the difference? The difference is in the tense. The way that he writes this in the original language is that those first three I am writing to you are present tense. These things that I'm saying are true in this moment. They are happening. And then he switches the tense. And when he says, I write to you, he's using a tense that's called aorist. And and in this language in Greek at this time, this is what he's saying. That these things have been accomplished. That they're done. That they are completed. That they are perfect that they are finished so when he says i write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning that this knowledge is satisfied that it is full that it is complete i write to you young men because you are strong this strength is not something that they are seeking to attain it's something that's already realized these men who believe in the gospel of jesus christ they are strong because the spirit of god lives inside of them And then he says this, and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. That you've overcome the evil one. That this has happened. Is there a tension here? Absolutely. Is there struggle here? Absolutely. But what John is presenting is the reality of the gospel. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ. That his namesake, that in his namesake we find That it is finished and that the good of the garden has been restored through him. That there is now life with God, communion with God through Jesus. So what what does all this say? 
few big truths to pull from this. One, here's the reality, that you and I are likely to sin. But when we do, we can experience what we experienced this morning. We can confess our sins and find the hearer, find the God of the universe as one who is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Why does that happen? Because Jesus stands in our place. He is our propitiation. He doesn't just go before God and say, don't look at this, don't see this. He says, see me and see what I've done. Jesus has taken all of our sin upon himself. We also are presented with the truth of what it means to know God. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? It looks like this. It looks like that we love him. That we're obedient to him. That we keep his word. As verse 5 says, we're also given the, the presentation that it looks like we live in love. That we live out this gospel. That we love our brother. That we don't hate our brother. And then he affirms these truths. He affirms that the core of this is our belief in the gospel. That it's trust in what Jesus has done. That we know him who's from the beginning. That we are strong because he's made us strong in himself. And that we've overcome the evil one. I think this is appropriate today because to many people in the world it looks like evil has won. Or is winning. Or has the upper hand or however you want to say it. But here's the reality. The true light has come into the world and it is shining. That's the truth. I believe that you know that because that true light has come to live in you by God's spirit. So can we be people today that live out the gospel in this way? And look, this poses some real questions for us. Like hard questions. Am I in him? Am I God's child? Am I one who keeps his commandments? That doesn't mean be perfect. Christ has been perfect for you. But are we ones who look like, reflect Jesus in our lives? Are we walking as he walked? Are we loving our brother? These are real questions for us to think on and for us to meditate on this morning. So as our worship team comes and we begin uh, to kind of close our service in a time of response, I think we need to ask some questions and allow the Spirit to work in our heart during these moments. To ask the Lord, where am I not reflecting you? Where is the place where I need to be transformed, where I need to confess and be forgiven and walk in the light, to live out the gospel? There may be, you may be here this morning and God's spirit may be working in your heart at this moment in such a way where you might say, look, I don't, I don't know that this is me. And in fact, I actually have a real struggle or, I, or I'm struggling to believe that, that I actually do love God. That I am obedient. That I do love my neighbor as myself. That I long to walk in light. I, 
and I want to do something about it. And here's what you can do about it. You can believe the gospel. You believe what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf for his namesake, his person, his work, all of him for your salvation. Um, we're going to have time as we close. This altar is going to be open. Um, and I'll, I'll be here to receive you if you want to talk about that. If you feel like the Spirit's working on you and, and is impressing upon you that you need to know the Lord, I, I want to know that. Whether you come down this aisle during this moment or, or we talk after the service or you call me on Tuesday. I want, I want to have that conversation with you. Your community group leader wants to have that conversation with you. So let's just take a moment and just reflect upon these scriptures. And ultimately, I want to say this to you, and I'll cry saying it, but um, John would say this to this group of people that he pastors, that he shepherds, that he loves. Not to bring doubt, but to bring assurance. And when I look at you, and I know many of you, many of you, Alec, I really know. I know you're his. I know you're his because of the way that you love others. I know you're his because of the way you've loved me. So in a world of brokenness and pain, could we be excited about? Could we rejoice in? Could we glory in the fact that the God of the universe has loved us so deeply that he's given his son? In love that we might have life. take a moment and pray and respond. God, I stand in a room full of believers. Got a room full of people who have been forgiven of their sins because of Jesus' name, because of what he has done. God, you've drawn us unto yourself, Father, in your Son. And we confess our gratefulness, our thankfulness. God, we're called by you and by your word to live as people of light, to live out this gospel in which we believe, this gospel in which we live in, that we have community. God, would you help us to be people that do that? That would be people that reveal your love to a broken world. Because we show them how you've restored us. God, I pray this morning for those even here that long to know you. God, would you draw them to yourself? Would you help them believe this gospel? And God, would you cause us, those of us who have believed, to believe it even in this moment yet again? In Christ's name, amen.